Section 26 of Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9, Part 1. Sex and Death. The front door and the back door of the world. How indissolubly are they associated in us. In youth they lift us out of the flesh. In old age they reduce us again to the flesh, one to fatten us, the other to flay us, for the worm. When are sexual compulsions more readily answered than in war, or famine, or flood, or fire? Jones, lurking across the street, saw the coast clear at last. First marched a uniformed, self-constituted guard, led by a subaltern with three silver V's on his sleeve, and a boy scout bugler furnished by the young Baptist minister, a fiery-eyed dervish who had served in the YMCA. And then, fatly arrogant as a cat, Jones led himself through the iron gate. The last motor-car trailed slowly up the street, and the casuals gathered through curiosity. The town should raise a monument to Donald Mahone, with effigies of Margaret Mahone Powers and Joe Gilligan for caryatids and the little blackguard boys, both black and white, and including young Robert Saunders, come to envy the boy bugler, drifted away. And still cat-like, Jones mounted the steps and entered the deserted house. His yellow goat's eyes became empty as he paused, listening. Then he moved quietly toward the kitchen. The procession moved slowly across the square. Country people in town to trade turned to stare vacuously, Merchant and doctor and lawyer came to door and window to look, the city fathers drowsing in the courthouse yard, having successfully circumvented sex, having reached the point where death would look after them instead of they after death, waked and looked and slept again. Into a street, among and between horses and mules, tethered to wagons, it passed into a street bordered by shabby negro stores and shops, and here was Louche, standing stiffly at salute as it passed. Who dat, Louche? Mr. Donald Mahone. Well, Jesus, we all gwine dat way some day. All roads lead to de graveyard. Emmy sat at the kitchen table, her head between her hard elbows, her hands clasping behind her in her hair. How long she had sat there she did not know, but she had heard them clumsily carrying him from the house, and she put her hands over her ears not to hear. But it seemed as if she could hear, in spite of her closed ears, those horrible, blundering, utterly unnecessary sounds, the hushed scraping of timid footsteps, the muted thumping of wood against wood, that passing left behind an unbearable unchastity of stale flowers, as though flowers themselves getting a rumour of death became corrupt, all the excruciating ceremony for disposing of human carrion, so she had not heard Mrs. Mahone until the other touched her shoulder. I would have cured him if they had just let me marry him instead of her. At the touch, Emmy raised her swollen, blurred face, swollen because she couldn't seem to cry. If I could just cry. You are prettier than me with your black hair and your painted mouth. That's the reason. Come, Emmy, Mrs. Mahone said. Let me alone. Go away, she said fiercely. You got him killed, now bury him yourself. He would have wanted you to come, Emmy, the other woman said gently. Go away, let me alone, I tell you. 
She dropped her head to the table again, bumping her forehead. There was no sound in the kitchen save a clock. Life, death, life, death, life, death, forever and ever. If I could only cry. She could hear the dusty sound of sparrows, and she imagined she could see the shadows growing longer across the grass. Soon it will be night, she thought, remembering that night long, long ago. The last time she had seen Donald, her Donald, not that one, and he had said, Come here, Emmy, and she had gone to him. Her Donald was dead long, long ago. The clock went, life, death, life, death. There was something frozen in her chest like a dishcloth in winter. The procession moved beneath arching iron letters. Rest in peace in caste repetition. Our motto is one for every cemetery, a cemetery for everyone throughout the land. Away, following where fingers of sunlight pointed among cedars, doves were cool, throatily unemphatic among the dead. Go away! Emmy repeated to another touch on her shoulder, thinking she had dreamed. It was a dream, she thought, and the frozen dish rag in her chest melted with unbearable relief, becoming tears. It was Jones who had touched her, but anyone would have been the same, and she turned in a passion of weeping, clinging to him. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. Jones's yellow stare enveloped her like amber, remarking her sunburned hair and her foreshortened thigh, wrung by her turning body into high relief. Whosoever believeth in me, though he were dead. My God, when will she get done weeping? First she wets my pants and my coat, but this time she'll dry it for me, or I'll know the reason why. Yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Emmy's sobbing died away. She knew no sensation save that of warmth and languorous contentment, emptiness, even when Jones raised her face and kissed her. Come, Emmy, he said, raising her by the armpits. She rose obediently, leaning against him warm and empty, and he led her through the house and up the stairs to her room. Outside the window, afternoon became abruptly rain, without warning, with no flapping of pennons nor sound of trumpet to herald it. The sun had gone, had been recalled as quickly as a usurer's note, and the doves fell silent or went away. The Baptist dervish's boy scout lipped his bugle, sounding taps. 2. Hi, Bob, called a familiar voice, that of a compatriot. The squap to Miller's, they're all playing ball up there. He looked at his friend, making no reply to the greeting, and his expression was so strange that the other said, "'What you looking so funny about? You ain't sick, are you?' "'I don't have to play ball if I don't want to, do I?' he replied with sudden heat. He walked on while the other boy stood watching him with open mouth. After a while he too turned and went on, stopping once or twice to look again at his friend, become suddenly strange and queer. Then he passed, whooping from sight, forgetting him. How strange everything looked. This street, these familiar trees. Was this his home, here, where his mother and father were, where Sis lived, where he ate and slept, lapped closely round with safety and solidity, where darkness was kind and sweet for sleeping? He mounted the steps and entered, wanting his mother. But of course she hadn't got back from... 
He found himself running suddenly through the hall toward a voice raised in comforting, crooning song. Here was a friend, mountainous in blue calico, her elephantine thighs undulating, gracious as the wake of a ferry boat as she moved between table and stove. She broke off her mellow, passionless song, exclaiming, Bless your heart, honey, what is it? But he did not know. He only clung to her comforting, voluminous skirt in a gust of uncontrollable sorrow, while she wiped biscuit dough from her hands on a towel. Then she picked him up and sat upon a stiff-backed chair, rocking back and forth and holding him against her balloon-like breast until his fit of weeping shuddered away. Outside the window the afternoon became abruptly rain, without warning, with no flapping of pennons nor sound of trumpet to herald it. 3. There was nothing harsh about this rain. It was grey and quiet as a benediction. The birds did not even cease to sing, and the west was already thinning to a moist and imminent gold. The rector, bareheaded, walked slowly, unconscious of the rain and the dripping trees, beside his daughter-in-law across the lawn houseward, and they mounted the steps together, passing beneath the dim and unwashed fanlight. Within the hall he stood, while water ran down his face and dripped from his clothing in a series of small sounds. She took his arm and led him into the study and to his chair. He sat obediently, and she took his handkerchief from the breast of his coat and wiped the rain from his temples and face. He submitted, fumbling for his pipe. She watched him as he sprinkled tobacco liberally over the desktop, trying to fill the bowl, and she quietly took it from his hand. Try this. It is much simpler, she told him, taking a cigarette from her jacket pocket and putting it in his mouth. You've never smoked one, have you? Eh? Oh, thank you. Never too old to learn, eh? She lit it for him, and then she quickly fetched a glass from the pantry. Kneeling beside the desk, she drew out drawer after drawer until she found the bottle of whiskey. He seemed to have forgotten her until she put the glass in his hand. Then he looked up at her from a bottomless, grateful anguish, and she sat suddenly on the arm of his chair, drawing his head against her breast. His untasted drink in one hand, and his slowly burning cigarette lifting an unshaken plume of vapour from the other, and after a while the rain passed away and the dripping eaves but added to the freshened silence, measuring it, spacing it off, and the sun breaking through the west took a last look at the earth before going down. So you will not stay, he said at last, repeating her unspoken decision. No, she said, holding him. For, before her descending, the hill crossed with fireflies. At its foot among dark trees was unseen water, and Emmy walked slowly on, feeling the tall wet grass sopping her to the knees, draggling her skirt. She walked on, and soon was among trees that, as she moved, moved overhead like dark ships parting the star-filled river of the sky, letting the parted waters join again behind them with never a ripple. The pool lay darkly in the dark, sky and trees above it, trees and sky beneath it. She sat down on the wet earth, seeing through the trees the moon becoming steadily brighter in the darkening sky. A dog saw it also and bayed, a mellow, long sound that slid immaculately down a hill of silence, yet at the same time seemed to linger about her like a rumour of a far despair. Tree trunks taking light from the moon, 
streaks of moonlight in the water. She could almost imagine she saw him standing there across the pool with her beside him. Leaning above the water, she could almost see them darting keen and swift and naked flashing in the moon. She could feel earth strike through her clothes against legs and belly and elbows. The dog bayed again, hopeless and sorrowful, dying, dying away. After a while she rose slowly, feeling her damp clothes, thinking of the long walk home. Tomorrow was wash day. Five. Damn, said Mrs. Mahone, staring at the bulletin board. Gilligan, setting down her smart leather bags against the station wall, remarked briefly, Late? Thirty minutes. What beastly luck. Well, can't be helped. Want to go back to the house and wait? No, I don't. I don't like these abortive departures. Get my ticket, please. She gave him her purse, and standing on tiptoe to see her reflection in a raised window, she did a few deft things to her hat. Then she sauntered along the platform to the admiration of those casuals always to be found around small railway stations anywhere in these United States, and yet Continentals labor under the delusion that we spend all of our time working. Freedom comes with the decision. It does not wait for the act. She felt freer, more at peace with herself than she had felt for months. But I won't think about that, she decided deliberately. It is best just to be free, not to let it into the conscious mind. To be consciously anything argues a comparison, a bond with antithesis. Live in your dream, do not attain it, else comes satiety, or sorrow. Which is worse, I wonder. Dr. Mahone, in his dream, reft, restored, reft again, funny for someone, I guess, and Donald with his scar and his stiffened hand quiet in the warm earth, in the warmth and the dark, where the one cannot hurt him and the other he will not need. No dream for him. The ones with whom he now sleeps don't care what his face looks like. Per ardua ad astra. And Jones, what dream is his? Nightmare, I hope, she said aloud, viciously, and one collarless and spitting tobacco said, Mum? With interest. Gilligan reappeared with her ticket. You're a nice boy, Joe, she told him, receiving her purse. He ignored her thanks. Come on, let's walk a ways. Will my bags be all right there, do you think? Sure. He looked about, then beckoned to a negro youth reclining miraculously on a steel cable that angled up to a telephone pole. Here, son. The negro said, sir, without moving. Get up, dar boy. That white man talking to you, said a companion, squatting on his heels against the wall. The lad rose and a coin spun arcing from Gilligan's hand. Keep your eye on them bags till I come back, will you? All right, Cap'n. The boy slouched over to the bags and became restfully and easily static beside them, going to sleep immediately like a horse. Damn em. They do what you say, but they make you feel so, so immature, don't they, she suggested. That's it, like you was a kid or something, and that they'd look after you even if you don't know exactly what you want. You are a funny sort, Joe, and nice, too nice to waste. Her profile was sharp, pallid against a doorway darkly opened. I'm giving you a chance not to waste me. Come on, let's walk a bit. She took his arm and moved slowly along the track, conscious that her ankles were being examined. The two threads of steel ran narrowing and curving away beyond trees. 
if you could see them as far as you can see, further than you can see. Huh? asked Gilligan, walking moodily beside her. Look at the spring, Joe. See? In the trees. Summer's almost here, Joe. Yes, summer is almost here. Funny, ain't it? I'm always kind of surprised to find that things get on about the same, spite of us. I guess old nature does too much of a wholesale business to ever be surprised at us, let alone worrying if we ain't quite the fellows we think we ought to have been. Holding his arm, walking a rail. What kind of fellows do you think we ought to have been, Joe? I don't know what kind of a fel—I mean, girl, you think you are, and I don't know what kind of a fellow I think I am. But I know you, and I tried to help nature make a good job out of a poor one without having no luck at it. Flat leaves cupped each a drop of sunlight, and the trees seemed coolly on fire with evening. Here was a wooden footbridge crossing a stream and a footpath mounting a hill. Let's sit on the rail of the bridge, she suggested, guiding him toward it. Before he could help her, she had turned her back to the rail, and her straightening arms raised her easily. She hooked her heels over a lower rail, and he mounted beside her. Let's have a cigarette. She produced a pack from her handbag, and he accepted one, scraping a match. Who has had any luck in this business, she asked. The loot has. No, he hasn't. When you're married, you're either lucky or unlucky, and when you're dead, you aren't either. You aren't anything. That's right. He don't have to bother about his luck any more. The Padre's lucky, though. How? Well, if you have hard luck and your hard luck passes away, ain't you lucky? I don't know. You're too much for me now, Joe. And how about that girl? Fellow's got money, I hear, and no particular brains. She's lucky. Do you think she's satisfied? Gilligan gazed at her attentively, not replying. Think how much fun she could have got out of being so romantically widowed and so young. I'll bet she's cursing her luck this minute. He regarded her with admiration. I always thought I'd like to be a buzzard, he remarked. But now I think I'd like to be a woman. Good gracious, Joe, why in the world? Now, long as you're being one of them, Sibyls, tell me about this bird, Jones. He's lucky. How lucky? Well, he gets what he wants, don't he? Not the woman he wants. Not exactly. Certainly he don't get all the women he wants. He has failed twice, to my knowledge. But failure don't seem to worry him. That's what I mean by lucky. Their cigarettes arced together into the stream hissing. I guess brass gets along about as well as anything else with women. You mean stupidity. No, I don't. Stupidity. That's the reason I can't get the one I want. She put her hand on his arm. You aren't stupid, Joe. And you aren't bold, either. Yes, I am. Can you imagine me considering anybody else's feelings when there's something I want? I can't imagine you doing anything without considering someone else's feelings. Offended, he became impersonal. Of course, you are entitled to your own opinion. I know I ain't bold like the man in that story, you remember? Accosted a woman on the street and her husband was with her and knocked him down. When he got up, brushing himself off, a man says, For heaven's sake, friend, do you do that often? And the bird says, Sure, of course I get knocked down occasionally, but you'd be surprised. I guess he just charged the beating to overhead. He finished with his old sardonic humor. She laughed out, and she said, Why don't you try that, Joe? He looked at her quietly for a time. 
She met his gaze unwavering, and he slipped to his feet facing her, putting his arm around her. What does that mean, Margaret? She made no reply, and he lifted her down. She put her arms over his shoulders. You don't mean anything by it, he told her quietly, touching her mouth with his. His clasp became lax. Not like that, Joe. Not like what? he asked stupidly. For answer, she drew his face down to hers and kissed him with slow fire. Then they knew that after all they were strangers to each other. He hastened to fill an uncomfortable interval. Does that mean you will? I can't, Joe, she answered, standing easily in his arms. But why not, Margaret? You never give me any reason. She was silent in profile against sun-shot green. If I didn't like you so much, I wouldn't tell you. But it's your name, Joe. Gilligan. I couldn't marry a man named Gilligan. He was really hurt. I'm sorry, he said dully. She laid her cheek against his. On the crest of the hill tree trunks were a barred grate beyond which the fires of evening were dying away. I could change it, he suggested. Across the evening came a long sound. There's your train, he said. She thrust herself slightly from him to see his face. Joe, forgive me, I, I didn't mean that. That's all right, he interrupted, patting her back with awkward gentleness. Come on, let's get back. The locomotive appeared blackly at the curve, plumed with steam like a sinister squat night, and grew larger without seeming to progress. But it was moving, and it roared past the station in its own good time, bearing the puny controller of its destiny like a goggled, greasy excrescence in its cab. The train jarred to a stop and an eruption of white-jacketed porters. She put her arms about him again, to the edification of the bystanders. Joe, I didn't mean that. But don't you see, I've been married twice already, with damn little luck either time, and I just haven't the courage to risk it again. But if I could marry anyone, don't you know it would be you? Kiss me, Joe. He complied. Bless your heart, darling. If I married you, you'd be dead in a year, Joe. All the men that marry me die, you know. I'll take the risk, he told her. But I won't. I'm too young to bury three husbands. People got off, passed them, other people got on. And above all, like an obligato, the vocal competition of cabmen. Joe, does it really hurt you for me to go? He looked at her dumbly. Joe, she exclaimed, and a party passed them. It was Mr. and Mrs. George Farr. They saw Cecily's stricken face as she melted, graceful and fragile and weeping into her father's arms. And here was Mr. George Farr, morose and thunderous, behind her, ignored. What did I tell you? Mrs. Mahone said, clutching Gilligan's arm. You're right, he answered from his own despair. It's a sweet honeymoon he's had, poor devil. The party passed on around the station, and she looked at Gilligan again. Joe, come with me. To a minister, he asked with resurgent hope. No, just as we are. Then when we get fed up, all we need to do is wish each other luck and go our ways. He stared at her, shocked. Damn your Presbyterian soul, Joe. Now you think I'm a bad woman. No, I don't, ma'am, but I can't do that. Why not? I don't know, I just can't. But what difference does it make? Why, none, if it was just your body I wanted. But I want, I want. What do you want, Joe? Hell, come on, let's get aboard. You're coming, then? You know I ain't. 
You knew you were safe when you said that. He picked up her bags. A porter ravished them skillfully from him, and he helped her into the car. She sat upon green plush, and he removed his hat awkwardly, extending his hand. Well, goodbye. Her face, pallid and calm beneath her small white and black hat, above her immaculate collar, she ignored his hand. Look at me, Joe. Have I ever told you a lie? No, he admitted. Then don't you know I'm not lying now? I meant what I said. Sit down. No, no, I can't do it that way. You know I can't. Yes, I can't even seduce you, Joe. I'm sorry. I'd like to make you happy for a short time if I could, but I guess it isn't in the cards, is it? She raised her face and he kissed her. Goodbye. Goodbye, Joe. But why not, he thought, with cinders under his feet. Why not take her this way? I could persuade her in time, perhaps before we reached Atlanta. He turned and sprang back on board the train. He hadn't much time, and when he saw that her seat was empty, he rushed through the car in a mounting excitement. She was not in the next car, either. Have I forgotten which car she's in, he thought? But no, that was where he'd left her, for there was the negro youth still motionless opposite the window. He hurried back to take another look at her place. Yes, there were her bags. He ran, blundering into other passengers the whole length of the train. She was not there. She's changed her mind and got off, looking for me, he thought, in an agony of futile endeavour. He slammed open a vestibule and leapt to the ground as the train began to move. Careless of how he must look to the station loungers, he leaped toward the waiting room. It was empty. A hurried glance up and down the platform did not discover her, and he turned despairing to the moving train. She must be on it, he thought furiously, cursing himself because he'd not stayed on it until she reappeared. For now the train was moving too swiftly, and all the vestibules were closed. Then the last car slid smoothly past, and he saw her, standing on the rear platform where she had gone in order to see him again, and where he had not thought of looking for her. "'Margaret!' he cried after the arrogant steel thing, running vainly down the track after it, seeing it smoothly distancing him. "'Margaret!' he cried again, stretching his arms to her to the vocal support of the loungers. "'Whap up, a little mister!' a voice advised. Ten to one on the train!' A sporting one offered. There were no takers. He stopped at last, actually weeping with anger and despair, watching her figure in its dark straight dress and white collar and cuffs, become smaller and smaller with the diminishing train that left behind a derisive whistle-blast, and a trailing, fading vapour like an insult, moving along twin threads of steel out of his sight and his life. At last he left the track at right angles, and climbed a wire fence into woods where spring becoming languorous with summer, turned sweetly nightward, though summer had not quite come. End of section 26 Read by Sandra, Montreal, 2022.